This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, fellow archaeologists. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic in San Francisco. Thank you all for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. If you're not listening to our main podcast, you are missing out. This episode, we'd like you to consider a donation through our Patreon page or pick up some merch from TeePublic if you are so inclined and want to help out the Rock and Roll Archaeology family of podcasts. We would humbly appreciate any and all help. All the info to do so can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com. And uh, archaeology is spelt A-E-O in the proper English form. So, thank you. Actually, the trunks was installed. She will come to the show tonight, praying to the light machines. She went behind the upper valley. She don't look at that. The left turning on the left train A little of the star man to open up today. Uh, no, I am not going to go into a trance and summon the black star from the great beyond to chat over tea and crumpets, though I wish I could. But we are going to speak to someone who did know Mr. Bowie and worked with him for a time in the mid-90s. Tony Michaelides is a legendary PR man from the UK. He helped develop regional record promotion and was a tireless manager breaking some of the biggest acts and records of the 80s and 90s. A, a footballer kid from Manchester who also loved music, through gritty determination and an accidental posting in a local rag, ends up getting paid a fine living for something we'd all probably do for free. He is going to tell us stories about some pretty legendary acts and how he helped some of them reach the heights of stardom, but also about the business, about the business then and now of promotions in the world of pop music. A little fun and a little education from a master. So, let's get to it. If I say to you tomorrow Take my hand, child, come with me I will take you But what's to be the same Can't do it 
Hello, Tony Michelides. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. Hello, Christian, and let me say, it's Michaelides. <laughs> Michaelides, Michaelides. That's a, a good Greek name, right? It is, it is. Yeah, so I, I take it your parents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Greece uh, to uh, the UK? Well, my dad was actually English, and my mum was kind of, um, she was from Athens, and he met her in the war. So she came, came over when she was 17, so she's pretty much all but English. Um, and like my son's got the Michael Eder surname, so it's kind of it's going to go down through the generations. But I was born in the predominantly poor part of Greece called Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, so that's where the Greeks went. Huh? Yeah. Okay. All right. So first question: uh, Given your decades of experience in the promotional side of the music business, and how how have things changed? What uh, what are some of the biggest differences that you see and uh, maybe what would you change? What is one thing you kind of wish would return from the good old days? Well, the thing is, I'm a kind of, you know, and it's not a case of getting old and being nostalgic, but, uh, you know, the thing with music is there's, there's um, I could go on endlessly about the greed that was in the record industry and stuff because, you know, when Napster came along, for instance, the guy I was working with at Magic Leap, he's the exact same sort of guy that would have, instead of closing them down like the record industry did, would have said, let's have lunch, you know, and talk about yeah, things. And then, right. then, of course, then, of course, Steve Jobs came in and the whole model changed type thing. So it was never... I mean, I took a line out of, you know, you two playing The Point in Dublin at the turn of the century. Uh, sorry, after the Rattle and Hum tour, after the whole 80s thing that they'd done with Unforgettable Fire into the Joshua Tree, into Rattle and Hum. Uh, and he said on New Year's Eve, he said, it's been a fantastic journey. We need to go away and dream it up all over again. And that's the kind of story of me emigrating because I had a fairly sizable promotion company um, and it was never going to be like it was. But, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, Christian, I mean, a lot of my heroes were footballers and, you know, pretentious as it might sound, I didn't want to see them playing in lower divisions. So for myself, <laughs> I didn't really want to kind of pick up, pick up what was left. I kind of, in my own little way, left a legacy by associating myself with both relevant and successful groups. Yes, I worked with a lot of groups you've never heard of, but we don't talk about them because they're not very interesting. Right. But well, okay, the, so the, the Tony Mike Leedy's origin story, you grew up in the north of England, uh, yeah. Manchester, or a real working-class city, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and I know you dreamed of playing football and, of course, being picked up by the hometown heroes, Manchester United. I mean, who in <laughs> the world doesn't yeah. know Manchester United? Any kid in that town would want to be that. So how yeah. old were you before you realized that particular dream wasn't going to happen? Well, the thing is, I mean, you kind of, you hope to get trials and stuff, and then you play, and I was playing football Saturday and Sundays, you know, and the rest of the week was going to school and stuff, and then you'd go and, like, you know, you'd kick, kick a ball on the field and stuff. But the reality set in that, you know, when I was kind of playing with, you know, it's like, really, I mean, the same thing happened with music. I was playing bass, but I was playing bass around a lot of people who were clearly better than I was. So you kind of have to grow up. And, and the shock of the fact that you're not going to be a professional footballer or a professional musician kind of kicks in. And with me, I suppose that came around about age 16. And, you know, not that it helped me with my direction in anything else that I want to do, because I still like to make some money to buy records and go to gigs. Right. So now you didn't really have a backup plan. You weren't saying, well, OK, fine. Uh, I'll just go be the lawyer that mom always told me I could be or something like that. 
Well, the funny thing again, Christian, is like all these things, I mean, because I'm kind of, you know, the kind of Socrates in me is coming out now. Um, wisdom does come with age, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of working things out that, that, you know, kind of make sense now. But I kind of, I mean, they call it, I mean, what's more entrepreneurial than kind of emigrating? I mean, most people don't do it. And if you do it, you only usually do it once. Right. Um, and things like managing creativity and innovative management and stuff are like the buzzwords in business school. Well, I manage creativity every day of my life with the artists that I was working with. Um, so kind of like, like, you know, a lot of those things kind of add up. But, but when it comes to kind of um, at school, I mean, careers officers don't come around and talk to you about getting in the music business. It kind of happened by accident, right, you know. So right. not that I'm, you know, I mean, if there was a job in the paper that shouldn't have been there, and the rest is history. So at 20, when all my friends were getting proper jobs, like, you know, whether they were working in butcher shops or car mechanics or being in insurance companies or banking or whatever... I got, got a job that was kind of an extension of So I went to work every day surrounded by music. And, um, you know, the people you were dealing with when I started, first of all, selling records, were, you know, the most educated of the lot because they were the people that worked in record shops. So they heard everything right, good that right. was coming in. Well, don't get too far ahead of me because I want to I know a couple okay, of things. Okay, sorry. So, so as a kid, were you always like the kid who could sell something? Did did you have the proverbial lemonade stand or, well, I, I guess it would be Apple Juice Pub in Manchester, but you get the <laughs> point, right? Did, 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 did you recognize that in yourself when you were young? No, not really. I mean, I, I don't like to use the word directionless, but I mean, I, I basically, when I left school, I was kind of in that period of in between done with school and not quite ready for work. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went to further education college, which really looking back on it was to pass the time. Um, and then it was like, well, what now, you know? So the story goes, I kind of got a lousy job, but I mean, I needed money, like I said, to go to records and buy gigs, but it wasn't, I wasn't ambitious. It was just that I didn't know where I was going to fit. And, um, I didn't dream of music. I just kind of thought, well, I'll, I'll see what, what happens. And something will happen. I've always been fairly positive and, and um, you know, like self-driven. I mean, I, I, I always have a reason to get up in the morning. I want to go back to, before we get into uh, the record business, you know, it, you, you mentioned that you know, somewhere around 15, 16, you begin to realize, yeah, you know, the bass playing and the football playing may not work out. But at the same time, you, uh, to me, you, you had a, a couple, well, certainly one, life-changing event when you're about 16 years old. Oh, so me, now, exactly. I, I yeah. want you to tell this story the, the way you told it in, in your book, Insights, uh, from the uh, engine room. I mean, uh, th this has got to be a life-changing event. You're 16 years old, and yeah. uh, the latest rock and roll band is sweeping the nation. Now, I think this is like 1969. Uh, but th this really, really changes. So, so tell, it, tell us the story from your perspective. Well, the story of Led Zeppelin is is that I went to um, I went to the gig that was the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which was like where all all the bands were playing and mm -hmm. stuff. And you know, it, we went and saw the show. I mean, it was just like I say in the book, on the verge of world domination. They just started to break. The concert was sold out, and they were coming to my hometown. I mean, they played like three months later as well. You know, they played I think played Manchester three times that year because that band was like known for for just like touring, 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 and the yeah, they were relative right. short. Well, in the relative short time compared to some of the dinosaurs of the Stones and the U2s that have been around since Methuselah now. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, with, with the gig, I went to the gig, and, and at the end of the gig, you um, you know, when people shuffled out and things, I mean, they didn't have any stalls selling merchandise. I mean, I think we were just getting into 
the time when they sold a program which gave like a few pictures of the band and a bio um but there weren't t-shirts or anything like this so at the end of the gig i mean i kind of waited behind with my friend um the commissioner was was kind of ushering people out of the place and i stuck my head in through the um if you manage a concert hall through one of the kind of front doors where you go in not front door into the into the general building but the front door into like the hall the concert hall and I, I, I mean, they had all these huge Marshall stacks, you know, which is, yeah. you know, at that age, you look at like a band with like four Marshall cabinets and you think, oh, my God, they're going to be good. But this was Led Zeppelin. So I was quite happy just to look there and look at the roadies buzzing about. And, and as we were stood there, uh, we'd taken the poster off the wall, um, you know, just just took the sellotape off and, and kind of rolled it up and had it under our arms. And then Roger Plant walks around and he's talking to one of the roadies and then he kind of sees these two awkward kids in the front and he kind of, you know, he pulls, push, I can see him while I'm talking about it. He, he kind of brushes his hair back and he and he kind of kneels down and, and, and reaches out and says, yeah, you want me to he's, a, he's a big guy. He's a big guy <laughs> and, and, and the stage is like probably six foot, you know, so it's not like, you know, I mean, you are literally looking up at the stage. I mean, so he said, do you, want, do you want me to sign that? Uh, and it was like, like I said, yes, please, sir, you know. Um, so we give him the poster and he signs, we each have a poster and he signs it. And then he rolls it up. And as he's passing it back to us, he says, well, it's not really much good with just me on, is it? Do you want to come back and meet the guys? And I'll get them to do it. <laughs> and it was like, you know, mouth open type thing. And then we're going to the side. And by this time, the place is pretty much emptying out because the job of the people at the end of the night is to get everybody out so they can sweep up and go home, turn yeah, the lights off. yeah. So we're going backstage. There was a band supporting them called the Liverpool scene who were from Liverpool and a guy called Adrian Henry who was a poet. And I think Roger McGuinn, actually, who was... Um, not that Roger hurts. McGuinn. Oh. No, no, not Roger McGuinn. Um, 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 I can't remember. Roger somebody. Um, anyway, uh, so we go backstage. And in those days, the, the dressing rooms would... I mean, there was no kind of, you know drinks and couches and TVs and it was very it's much not, it's like, not like a, a green room that you would have today. No, no, no. Right, it was right, like right. a theater. If you can picture it with like the um the mirrors on the wall and like the desk where people would get made up for the plays and stuff. And a few like not particularly comfortable chairs. Unled Zeppelin. So <laughs> we're kind of in the corner looking awkward. And and one thing I didn't mention in the book which I'll share with you is kind of it's very informal and, and they they sign it and we say thank you very much you know and they and they smile so they're very courteous and everything and there wasn't like debauchery there was no kind of you know drugs and women and all that even though they were probably just discovering and things so we were kind of like we were kind of part of a, a mini family just in, nobody asked us to leave i mean richard called the tour manager who i've kind of spoken to way past then and oddly enough was that peter grant or no no, no that, Pete, that peter their grant. manager right right Peter Grant was the manager. Richard yeah. Cole was the yeah. tour manager. Ah, mm -hmm. um, and then they had, um, strangely enough, I met this guy about 10 years ago, and he's a friend of mine here, and he lives in a place called South Pasadena, which is a mile and a half from where I live on St. Pete Beach in Florida. Really? And, he was Jim, and he was Jimmy Page's roadie for all that time. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, obviously there's endless stories Small from way back when. But my own personal experience was, you know, they kind of, you know, they signed the post and then we were still stood there. And it was kind of like, you don't know what to do because one, you're never expecting to be there. And well, and we're there. And, and then I remember this vividly because as I was writing the stuff in the book, it all came flooding back. I was at a time and a place like 40 odd years ago. And um, I, 
I remember Jimmy Page, if you can picture him sitting on the counter with his hands under his knees, like, you know, with his legs going to and fro, and Robert Plant sitting on the chair. And I remember him kind of looking over at him and saying, are you going to come round to our place tomorrow then and we'll finish that song? And when I was writing the book, I thought, oh, my God, was that... Was that Stairway to Heaven, maybe? Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. What song? So I might have been, I, right? I might have been in a part of history <laughs> in my kind of teenage years. Um, but the, but the significant thing, in a way, as you get older and the the kind of the job that I did and the role that I played, with you know, I had a lot of free tickets to a lot of gigs and stuff over the years, and it, I never lost sight of of what it meant to me to meet your heroes. Right. So That's whenever I that, I'd that passion, that 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 yeah, that, that actual love. Of uh, of what what came out of the speakers, I I I know what you mean. And and when I when I was like working, I had free tickets to give to the media. If I had ever ever had any left over, um, you know, I'd give them away to kind of fans outside. I remember vividly once I was at a Genesis concert in 1980 in Manchester, and it was like a miserable day, and there's lot, like kids hanging around outside, you know, and of course there's touts. You know, and I was kind of like schmoozing around to see like who genuinely was going to go to the gig, and there's this boy and girl and. You know, they were outside. I think it was drizzling. And the touts were, like, selling tickets or something. I came out, and, and I said, do you want tickets? And I must have looked really shady because the way I said it. <laughs> and the guy just nodded, you know, like, you know, I said, come with me round the corner. And I look at it now. I thought, God, he's probably thought I was going to yeah, mug you... him or something. <laughs> so I took him round the corner, and I gave him two tickets. And he stood there and looked at me. And I said, I'll give you these on one condition. And he's still not even talking to me, him and his girlfriend. Well, is and, it, I'm um, sure his mouth's agape. And no, he doesn't believe at... me, does he? He doesn't <laughs> believe me. So I give him the tickets. I say, I give you these on one condition. You can take these tickets, and I'm going to walk right behind you until the guy rips the stub off and you walk into the hall. So oh, then he takes of, the tickets. Instead of trying to hawk him. Right, right. Yeah, right. and then he's walking in, and I'm following him behind, and he goes to the door, and the guy rips the ticket off, the, the guy at the door taking the tickets, and then they walk in. And uh, I just looked at him and I said, enjoy the show. And the girl just threw herself at me. You know? Oh, gave you It was reason. like, right, right. I just couldn't believe somebody right. was doing that. And if yeah. I was them, I suppose I'd be, not for, not for, not for, because I need the attention of them, but I think if I was that, I would be telling that story to people. I can't believe when I was 15, this guy gave me, and I had no idea who he was. I've never seen him since, but he gave me two tickets to the best concert I've ever seen. Um, so that's what I mean about, like, you don't lose sight of what it means. Right. Um, you know, to, to kind of see your band. For me, going to the gig was enough. Did I, did I need to meet him? Oh, my God, you know. And, and as the story goes right, on, right, right. when I go to school, I'm kind of, I'm on cloud nine because my friends had been to the gig. I probably had 10 mates at school that went to the show. <laughs> but none of them kind had, had no. like the royalty treatment like uh, me. Uh, yes, none of them got to meet Zeppelin. So I still hey. like talking about it now, and we're talking 50 years ago. Yeah, it is. It, it'll be 50 years next year if it was 19. Exactly. So. so was music something that was played a lot in your house growing up? Uh, no, not really. My dad was into opera. Uh, my dad passed away like, you know, a week um, after I got my first job. So um, uh, there was no real kind of, you know, I mean, I, there was the poem called Top of the Pops in the UK and you'd yeah. watch it and, and yeah. all the kind of hit artists would be on. And, you know, it'd be like... So the family would sit around the telly and watch that, but... Well, he'd be in the room with... uh, wasn't wasn't really a... No, but but what you'd get would be, what are you watching this crap for again, you know? And it's like, you know, I mean, it's like... And he was into kind of, you know, very much like classical music, and my mother enjoyed opera as well. So they would go to the odd kind of, you know, proper 
mm-hmm. concert type thing. And mm-hmm. but I suppose that happened in a lot of households. So um, the answer to your question is that I wasn't brought up on it. So it wasn't like my ga- dad was a classical pianist or anything like that. Um, and the music that was kind of in the house that was played, kind of his and my record collection. I mean, we lived in a fairly large house, so I had a record player in my room where my friends would congregate and listen to the records I'd bought each weekend with my pocket money. Right. So I want to hit on one second event, a second event that you caught that, that sure uh-huh. seems like a life changer right before you actually do end up in the music business. So get me to the Hammersmith Odeon on July 3rd, 1973. Well, that was the, that was the last of the Bowie gigs because uh, David Bowie, again, this is in my book, although my publisher um, changed the hard rock to the hard rock cafe, which sounds like David Bowie played a burger bar. Uh, yeah. David Bowie played a venue in Manchester that was open barely a year. It had traffic. It had Led Zeppelin. It had Velvet Underground. It had, like, Manassas. It had all these bands coming in, Bob Marley and the Wailers. And it, the two opening nights were David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. Uh, and they still rem- I went to both nights. They still remain to this day one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. So oh, can't, I, can't imagine, uh, uh, not, I have another. Uh, I have another for you. Well, I have another story about being at college, which which relates to that concert. I was at college in a school that was seventy percent guys and thirty percent women, and I became social secretary, which is the guy who kind of books all the bands. So I was like of the ratio of seventy against 30 women, and I had all the tickets to all the gigs. So it wasn't hard to get a date. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I just bought Good Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> yeah, I just bought Ziggy Stardust. And there was this attractive girl that, that you know, and at that age, you're like testosterone's eye and you talk about girls and chicks and, you know, and you're into music and stuff and you're putting shows on. And anyway, I, I plucked up the courage to ask her out. And she said yes. And I'd just bought Ziggy Stardust, like I said. So I went round to pick her up on the Saturday night. And um, in those days, you know, she'd be upstairs getting ready and uh, the mother would throw you in the front room, um, you know, while she was getting ready. So I went in there, sat on my own, waiting for her. And um, like the nerd that I was, I saw the record collection. So I kind of rifled through the record collection. Of course, Um, I did that all the time. Exactly. And I pulled out Hunky Dory. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, this is a good start. I'm kind of taking a girl out for the first day. And she's actually got the album. She passed the first test, huh? She's got the album before the one I just bought. So, you know, so I take her out. So anyway, there's a story goes, naturally, I married her and had two kids with her. What else would you do? (laughs) And that's a true story. Right, right. right. (laughs) So, but you were there on uh, July 3rd, 1973, the last performance ever of Ziggy Stardust. Well, the story of... A friend of mine interviewed Woody Woodmansey like um, a few years back, and I had the privilege of living that, uh, you know, like hearing that interview and stuff. Yeah, I got um, to meet Woody uh, last year, so. I, great. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, it's, it must be hard for somebody like that looking back on everything that was, and you were part of something that is historical, um, and you never really benefited from it, and you're probably like, you know, not much better off now than when you weren't getting paid much in the band. But like I say, they were they were the spiders from Mars. And of course, Mickle Bronson is another story altogether with kind of the guitar player oh, that he was. Yeah. But I think the thing is that... The perfect the, foil the, for Bowie the, at the time. The thing, when you go to a gig, it's like nothing else matters. There's no wars, there's nothing. And you walk out with that feeling of total fulfillment and euphoria. And you talk about it at school, you talk about it in the pub, you talk about it wherever you're doing, whatever you're doing, because it makes a difference in your life. So to be somewhere where 
when when the band came out at the end of the night and Bowie said, um, this isn't the last show, the last show we'll ever do. And the band didn't even know. So he kind of split up the band in front of them. Yeah. Um, but from an they audience didn't know. point of view, I know. Yeah. no. But being a punter and being in the audience and having to drive back to Manchester, I mean, people with like glitter on and, and, and like looking like Ziggy and stuff, like the audience. And then you're walking out and people with tears rolling down their face and stuff. It was not. And then I had to get in the car for three hours. So the thing is, it wasn't a great end to a night. But the other thing is that, that what what I was thinking was I was with a friend and it was like, it was like I was so annoyed. It was like, you can't do this. Well, yeah, How you, can you, you can't leave? You can't stop? You can't what, are you doing? what are you thinking? Right, right. But when you get older, and, and obviously, you know, my experience of working with Bowie, and, you know, you start to understand why he's the most innovative artist of our time, because... Yes. That's what he does. I mean, Bowie had been around Christian for 10 years. He'd oh, had one hit. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. One hit, yeah. you know. And then wh why would anybody split something up at the height of the career that you've had? Nobody does that except uh, David Bowie. Take some uh, some very big cojones to, uh, to yeah. take it all away and start over, So uh, especially at, when you're at that point. But, but the as an artist, you have to. I mean, But the interesting thing with Bowie was – he became that alien rock star to the extent that he was kind of on another the planet. the rest of his life, yeah. It did. Uh, it, well, yeah. well, not only that, but he was on another planet where he became this alien rock star to the extent that he was a heroin addict mm. and a drunk. Yeah. And he, if he didn't, and you look at his age, he would have been that fateful 27-year-old who didn't get past what Janis Joplin and Brian Jones and, right. and Jim Morrison, those people fell by the wayside because they couldn't take control of that lifestyle uh, and he was as as you know i mean he was he was crazed oh berlin, um, berlin saved his life there's there's no two ways exactly but to split it off in its peak and then to to reinvent yourself at that age yeah when you'd had little crazy. success is is totally beyond belief so uh, <coughs> off to school and a and a dead-end job uh what what was it that you did before the fateful ad in 1974 and the manchester newspaper caught your eye well, I worked at a, a, a company just... We were kind of taking orders and selling everything from uh, meat produce and stuff to, like, linen and things. And I was taking and filing. It's like a filings clerk, you know, but I used to come into work. I don't want to mention the name because it's kind of, you know, somebody might still oh, be that's there. Fine. Them. That's fine. But the, but the thing is, it's like I'd come into work every day and the guy that was sat, like, opposite me, from the moment he came in on a Monday morning, he would just talk about um, how long it was till he got in the pub on a Friday. And the guy sat next to me was like this big, like, fat guy, you know, that would sit and they'd sit. The first thing would, this is what my nine o'clock on a Monday was. He would come and he would undo the first button on his pants so he could sit there like a, a complete slob. And he'd been there seven years. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And the, and the office manager was a guy who'd been there 25 years. And he used to come up and he used to sit in his little glass office with his secretary outside, and you wouldn't see him from the moment he came in to the moment he went out. He came in at nine and went at five, and it was like there was no kind of camaraderie, if you call it that or anything. And the other thing is he would send his wife out to buy, uh, sorry, his PA to go out and buy flowers for his wife's anniversary and for his wedding anniversary and for his wife's birthday and, and give one of the people the, the car keys and, yeah, can you go and wash my car type thing. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is there was nothing that inspired me. You know, nothing at all. I mean, um, and anyway, one day I, I kind of was going home on the train and um, 
I don't usually do this, but the train at rush hour is fairly packed. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody had left a copy on a bench outside while I was waiting for it, a copy of the Manchester Evening News, which is the equivalent of the, of the local newspaper, the evening paper. Um, oh, my God, when they have the evening papers, eh? Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I picked it up and, and, you know, I've got one hand like, you know, like stood up in the in the in the um, you know in everything else. Then somebody got up and there was no women waiting to sit down. So I sat in the chair. So I opened it. I flicked it through. And normally I would just read the football and, yeah, and the like sports stuff score. like right, right, right. Yeah, and I'd go to the what's on page, which actually wasn't until a Friday anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then I um, and then I came to the classifieds and I kind of browsed through it, and um, I saw this ad for for. Um, a record company rep in the north of England. And uh, the story goes that, you know, I kind of didn't really think anything of it. And then I kind of got off the train and I started to think about it. And I got home and I went to bed and I was still thinking about it. And then I got off the train. Uh, sorry, I got on the train in the morning. I'm still... And, I, and then I'm kind of just gazing out windows in the office. Anyway, at lunchtime, I made the decision to go to the HMV store. Um, and this label was called Transatlantic. The irony of this thing was, in those days, I mean, like when I was at Island Records, my first day at Island Records was I went in to, to meet the guy that was going to give me the job, and the two girls at, on reception looked like they could have been on a Roxy music, music sleeve because they employed people that kind of looked the part, you know. The perfect but the thing with, right. But the thing with Transatlantic, I didn't know anything about him. It was so a I did small, independent uh, jazz and folk. Uh, folk right? and jazz. But I had I was buying Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin records. <laughs> and stuff, you know, and my hair was kind of long. And it mm. wasn't kind of like, I had none of these. And the people I was working, two labels that, that I worked with, which are legendary, are Blue Note and Milestone, which has like yeah. John Coltrane, yeah. And, yeah. you know, Love Supreme, mm. Miles Davis, should I say, and, and McCoy Tan. All the greats, you know, were, were on that label, and, and I knew nothing about it. Anyway, I applied for the job, and I didn't get it. But I didn't think anything of it because I didn't expect to get it. But But it was kind of like six months later, I got the... You know, I got a letter because they, you know, the, the the letter you get is, oh, thank you for your recent application. Unfortunately, blah blah blah. We will keep your letter at hand. Of well, they did they actually, will. <laughs> they did actually keep my letter at hand. Amazing. They, uh, yeah. Six months later, they, they the guy phones me up and says, "You're still interested in the job?" And I, I kind of met him, and you know, I met him in this dodgy bar in Manchester with like, you know, topless waitresses, and you know, I, I was like spitting, a, he was spitting a cheese sandwich out with a huge beard and <laughs> long hair as he was talking to me, and and my application for the job was, well, do you fancy the gig then, man? That was it, and so that was it. So and then I started selling records at the back of a van for like about twenty twenty five pounds a week. So now, um, if I if I read it this right, the, the ad itself was a mistake. It wasn't even supposed the, to be the yeah, Manchester yeah. newspaper, which was, right? Which was which was par for the times, to be honest, because it should have been in the equivalent of Billboard, which in the yeah, UK like enemy, music, the enemy, right, right, right. Well, no, not the enemy, the trade paper. Oh, 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 okay, okay. So it would have been in the paper that was delivered to record companies. You know, like 25 copies would go to, <laughs> you know, RCA and things, and yeah. they would be in the sales department and this and that. So it wasn't available to the public. It was kind of subscription only. So fate um, stepped in and so, uh, yeah. put, you, put you right where you're supposed to be, which is but when I, business. But, but when I applied for it, Christian, it was like, I was thinking, well, you know, I don't have a job in the music business. If I don't get it, I still don't have a job in the music industry. Yeah. Like nothing ventured, nothing gained. So you don't good really expect to, to get it. Good attitude to keep. But, yeah. you know, the other thing is it's very inspiring, like, to hear that now, even even though it's my story about me and I'm listening to it as well as as well as relating it. But the, the, the thing is that, um, 
you know, like it was the job that I never expected that I would never let go, you know. And, and I think the thing is, you know, when, when, if you can dream it, you can believe it. It's all these kind of self-help things that people talk about now, but I kind of did it. But the interesting thing was all my friends who went to the same gigs and bought basically the same records um, had the opportunity to apply for a paper that was available to all of them, all of them. Not that it makes me any better, but I applied for it, and they went into the real world and did real jobs, um, you know, for, for real companies and stuff. And, and my job was, from then, like an extension of my hobby. But the interesting thing from a self-motivation point of view was I went out every day in the pouring rain and what have you, working for this folk and jazz label, to prove to the guy that gave me the job it was the best decision he'd ever made getting me in there. Well, take the listeners back to Transatlantic, Transatlantic Records on day one. Yeah. What, what was it like on the first day? Did you sleep the night before? Unbelievable. My first day was, um, again, this is another thing that missed from the book. So I got the job to start, and as it happens, they had a sales meeting um, about 45 miles from me. So I got invited to the sales meeting, and I went down. And, and um, at the same time, I just picked my van up. So I got, like, a guy picked me up, the North, one of the other reps, um, and we went down to the gig. And my van, which had 6,500 albums in the back, he didn't have any at the time because um, I was just picking it up. Oh, no, actually, that's not true. I'd just got the van. I'd gone to London. But when I went to the sales meeting, I didn't have a, my car. And, and I went to the sales meeting. I went through the whole kind of meeting stuff. And then when it came out, we were in the car park. And um, the sales manager was there and the guy who employed me, the field sales manager, um, and they were kind of talking in the car park. And I got in my thing and I said, bye, bye, bye. And I got in the car and it was dark. And um, I managed to reverse it into the sales manager's car. Oh, no. So my first day proper in the in the music business was like it could have been like the shortest job. Ever. It, it so, can only go up from here. <laughs> so well, I mean, what you what you say? I got out of the car, like you know, and looked, at, and and Alan Way, the sales manager, said to Ray Ray Cooper, the guy who'd employed me, uh, "You got a good one there, then, Ray." <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kept my job. I mean, it was kind of like you know, I don't know. I mean, I didn't yeah. wreck it, but I yeah. kind of just. Yeah. Put a, put, a, put a good scratch in it, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I've never driven a van. I've been driving cars. You know, I mean, it was a, it was like a long wheelbase transit van, which kind of had wing mirrors on the side, and yeah. you know, you couldn't see through the rear view mirror because you had like a, a wall behind you, so to speak. Full so. of records. Anyway, I survived that. I could survive anything. Yeah. So you cut your teeth hawking jazz, folk, and blues records, and uh, I, yeah. I, I would assume getting to know all the employees at every record store in the north of England and Scotland. Uh, what's what was an average day like for you? Did, 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 well, I didn't did you do go as to far a warehouse as... and load the boot up and head no, out that what... day, make a milk run, or what? What was it like? What I did was I had six and a half thousand records in the back of the van. I used to call on. I didn't go as far as Scotland. I did the northwest. I mean, we had like okay. six or ten. Uh -huh. uh, so we had we had van sales reps and we had car reps and car reps did the smaller shores. But that was the early days of Virgin Retail as well. Um, so I was calling on the Virgin store in Manchester, and I was calling on HMV, and I was calling on the small independents. I mean, there was like a really cool record store in Liverpool, Probe Records, which is pretty legendary. Where, yeah, and there was also a, pl a place called, um, well, another place, Reedy's, but there was another one. Oh God, it, the name escapes me. It'll come to me, but I can see it because it was on Matthew Street in Liverpool, um, and it was Brian Epstein's Nems. And oh, I used yeah, to call, right. yeah, yeah, and I didn't see Brian Epstein, but downstairs was the record department. 
and I went into like a legendary record store in 1972 and Probe Records was where, you know, Pete Wiley from War was in and, and the Bunny Men and, um, and, and Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. These guys were just hanging out records. So they were just hanging around for the day listening to music because they didn't really have anything else to do as such. But I went to kind of, you know, all these like stores in the center. But the thing is, because I had all these records in the van, and it was if it, if it was a new folk release, because there's not a big markup in records. It's not like, you know, a jewelers or something right, like that. Right, right. And when you think of the stock to sales ratio, the records that you have to carry against the ones that sell. Um, so what I would do is I would, I would let the record stores try records. So I'd let them take three copies of a new folk record. And then if they were still stuck with them, like five or six weeks later, I'd swap them over in the van for the records that they could sell. So it allowed me to kind of get new releases into stores. That otherwise, if it was an independent retail, it was their own store, they wouldn't really, you know, have probably bought. And that worked quite well with some of the newer artists. Um, and it kind of got me understanding a little bit in the early days about artist development, but on a retail side. But after like two years at Transatlantic, I got an opportunity to go to another yeah, um, a, a, a major label. Uh, yeah, it was. ABC, it was ABC. Right? ABC were opening yeah. an operation in the UK called Anchor, um, and that was the UK subdivision. But but they had Ace, How Long, which was our kind of big hit record. But they had Stray, a rock band. But they also had like Don Williams and Freddie Fender and and yeah. um, Some a large mainstream yeah. rock and roll at had, the time. Right? They had bands like Poco and stuff as well, you know, yeah, which was yeah. great. Steely Dan. Steely Dan was the obvious one. Yeah. But I, I wasn't working with those bands. I was selling those records into shops. Right, right, right. So you see, I think you're only there for a year, and then things really changed for you. Well, let, well they, let, kind of, they kind of closed the operation down. But it, it happened at a convenient time, because a girl I know who, who used to do displays for Island Records, the guy that she cohabited with was the Island um, promotions guy. And... He just was about to lose his license because he, he, he got a DUI, the equivalent of a DUI in England. Mm -hmm. uh, so clearly he was going to lose his license. So clearly there was going to be a vacancy. And she, she was kind of coerced me into it. I mean, I don't take any credit for it because I was thinking, hang on, I'm going into record stores and I'm meeting amazing people who love music who are becoming friends. Right. You know, so uh, there, was times that, there was times I would go out and, um, you know, and, and sell records in the day and then end up at a record store and we go out to a gig in that city and I'd get home at, like, midnight, you know, and stuff yeah, like do that. do it all so, over again the next day, right. And I'm thinking, hang on, now I've got to, like, be a promotions guy and I've got to laugh and be sycophantic at all the DJs <laughs> to get my records played. So I didn't really want it. And, 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 and she said, and, I, and then, like, and then, and then the other half of it was thinking, I'm getting an offered, offered a job at my all-time favourite record label. So I've been buying these records in the 60s, like Traffic and Free and Spooky Tooth. Yeah, and, yeah this is Chris Blackwell's Island record. Yeah, but, but Island, Island then yeah. had everything oh, that you yeah. would ever want. Because yeah. it had Chrysalis. Including the icon, Bob Marley. Well, yeah, but that was the Island record label. Yeah. Not only that, it had Virgin. Yeah. So Tubular Bells came through the arrangement with That's Island. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And it had Chrysalis, so Jethro Tull were there. Right. And it had it had Elton John's label, which was kind of Rocket or something. Or so we. I'm not there, but but you know, Elton John was breaking around then. It had a wide cross section of stuff, apart from having like the Tough Gong label with all the reggies and, right, the, and the burning right. beers, and yeah. which I knew nothing about, but I got into pretty quick. But the, but the irony of it was, it's like, hang on, you're going to give me um, 
I'm going to get all these records for free and you're going to pay me. <laughs> so it was kind of like, <laughs> really? So, yeah. So and then all of a sudden, you know, that's what I mean, my story about working with people whose records I'd bought as a kid. Yeah. All of a sudden, like the traffic albums, which came back and I could see the like, you know, Mr. Fantasy Sleeve around the fire, you know, all stone doing this and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, Steve Winwood is an artist that I'm going to be working with from a promotion's point of view. And I worked, um, you know, Ark of the Diver onwards from him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. John Martin was on the label then. Sandy Denny, I think, was still alive. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I think she was. But also, like, they had, um, you know, that led into them signing U2, which was a bit later on, around 1979, 80. 79, yeah. So now, now this, this is just before the advent of N- MTV. So tell us Absolutely, a, yeah. a, about a typical day in the promotional world of Island Records prior to MTV. Well, what I would do was I had radio stations again in the north of England, and it was it was kind of the start of commercial radio. Um, so I was kind of calling on, on heads of music. But it's funny, actually, because, again, it's not a job that you train for. And, you know, I mean, I'm kind of loaded up for for kind of changing the way regional promotion uh, happened in the UK. And that's kind of maybe later on when we talk. But the, but in this stage, it was kind of like, you know, I got to, you know, I had developed, I developed relationships in the stores where people would try new releases knowing they could get rid of them. But here, I mean, in those days, there was about 130 singles a week came out and probably somewhere between 7, 10, 12 of them only ever really got any amount of airplay. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first record I actually ever promoted was Third World, now that we found love. Um, and, of course, Bob Marley was, was getting onto playlists, so that was kind of my calling card in the stations. But, you know, in those days, stations were a lot looser. For instance, you would pick up a lot of stations with um, commercial stations with uh, Steve Winwood and Robert Palmer records because they were good radio records, um, but they weren't necessarily top five singles. But they had a massive amount of airplay that contributed to selling the album. And in those days, every station um, in major cities and smaller cities had a specialist show. I mean, my, my guy in Liverpool had a rock show three nights a week, Monday to Friday, three hours a night. Five so you days could a break week. a lot of a lot of new bands. Oh yeah, that, I mean right. that 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 was where I was managing to get bands like U2 played on on the mm-hmm. guys' show that might have gone out, you know, at eleven o'clock on a Friday night, two hours. But that's where you take Bon on the edge in and get three tracks of the album played, you know, and yeah. and, and you'd slowly build. But I also had. And again, I take credit for this myself, I have to say, but I would have like, I mean, there was a guy called Richard Park in Glasgow and another one, Roger Day in, in, in Manchester, another one, Dave Lincoln in Liverpool. And they would be my media tastemakers. So further on in my career, when I had a record, for instance, uh, for I would say something like Buffalo Stance by Nana Cherry, which was a one-off yeah, record yeah, yeah, by yeah. a completely unknown artist, mm-hmm. I would take a promo copy or, or a cassette in those days to heads of music, and I would leave it with them like six weeks up front of release, and I would say, let me know what you think of this. And I would have a real good idea of what type of chance I would have had promoting that record when it came out because they were um, really good at spotting hits. And, you know, if I got a, like 80% approval rate or something on something like that, I knew I was onto something good. So it gave me the confidence that not just I liked it, but people of influence liked it. So when I took it into the smaller stations, I could say confidently, you know, there's a good chance this is going to be a hit. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of the record companies there, you know, the policy is if you throw enough S against the wall, some of it sticks, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for Ireland, I mean, they believed in 
in pretty much everything that came out, and they didn't have that volume of stuff. Um, but yeah, but I, I had people who's who's are respected in their jobs. But I also say to people, you know, I mean, I was successful at it. Obviously, it kind of, you know, I built a reputation which has lasted and got me into the country as well. But the thing is, it, people didn't play my records because they liked me. They listened to them because they respected me, because they knew I had a job to do. I had to report back to the labels and the managers, the artists, what people thought of their records. And that's the thing when I work with really big managers like Michael Lippmann in Los Angeles um, mm -hmm. with Matchbox 20, you know, I had no problem of, of the first thing I ever said to the guy was, if I can't get arrested with this record, you'll be the first to know. I never had a problem telling anybody the truth. I, I didn't patronise him and, and tell him we're getting there and this and that. I gave him a good idea of what was happening. And sometimes it wasn't good news. Yeah, I can imagine that is not an easy conversation. Well, the, the worst, but uh, yeah, you just you're getting paid to to do that. That's part of the promotional the, gig is to keep them uh, appraised of reality. But that's easier with the managers because a good manager is going to. I mean, again, I, I quote like Michael Lippmann, who was a great. You know, you know, a oh, yeah. real great guy to work with. Mm -hmm. Very powerful manager. But, you know, like I said to him, I mean, I ended up with Matchbox 20. He was phoning me up and asking me if it was worth doing this thing that the London promotion people had offered him. So I was kind of effectively almost on a managerial role because I would get, I mean, the time difference in L.A., I was eight hours. I'd get phone calls when I was climbing into bed at like midnight and things. Mm -hmm. With his pay, oh, Tony, Michael wants to talk to you, you know, and it was like I'm half asleep, you know. And, um, <laughs> but, the, but the thing about it is, you know, the thing is when I said to him, I said, listen, Michael, I said, you know, when you come in, to the record company. I mean, they put all the sandwiches out and they put the like little smoothie things in and they put they put together a meeting and, and you know, the managing directors there and the director of sales and the director of press and all the kind of upper echelon of the record companies are there. And I said, when you go, they get on with the Madonna record because it's easier. So I wasn't slagging people off. I was just telling him like it is. And, I, I, and then there was another thing when Matt Shots came in and he asked me about it. I looked at it and it was like two pages of promotion. But to be honest... It was like doing small little radio stations and tiny little out-of-town press things that made no difference to the record at all. And I didn't have a problem saying, well, you know, to be honest, Michael, this isn't as good as it looks. And I would, I would ask him to do things. Uh, I wouldn't ask him if I didn't think it was worth it. But I remember him saying to me, you know, Tony, he said, this is great. He said, we're doing really well in Germany and in Australia. And if it's not worth bringing... I mean, this is a band who'd sold three million albums of, of the release of just singles only to radio. And they become a priority in the UK. I mean, UK is a very big on the taste making. You have a hit in the UK, you get a release all over Europe. Um, yeah, and yeah. So he said to me, if, it's, if I bring Matchbox 20 in and it's not worth doing the promotion in the UK, he said, it's going to cost me 60 grand and it's recoupable. So I can take them somewhere else where it's going to make a difference on the record. Um, but yeah, I had some good times on the road. But you see, even when Matchbox 20 came in, uh, they only had like two or three days for promotion, but I split the band up. I had um, I had one person in my company taking them on a tour in Scotland, another person working them in the Midlands, and somebody else. Um, so they'd overlap. So we'd do four days promotion in two. Um, and, a, right. and a record, yeah, exactly. But a record company couldn't do that because they had one person right. doing it in London. And, yeah. and we had visibility throughout the stations. I mean, um, but again, these aren't things that you're taught. You just kind of think, well, this makes sense. I mean, even, even down the line, I, I, I bought a... I mean, you can imagine what it costs now. It's probably a $20, like, download. Probably not even that. But I spent 15 grand on an ISDN unit. So when we had a major artist with a hit single, like an Natalie Brulia, um, we would bring her into my 
my office stroke studio in Manchester, and we'd do five breakfast shows one after the other. I'd get some croissants and bagels in, a pot of coffee. Right. No delay uh, with the ISDN, and uh, it sounds no. like you're in a perfect studio. It sounds like but you're right next door, right. It sounds like they're in, and we had Bill Wyman in and Peter yeah. Green. A lot of legends came in, and I charged it to record companies, like $250 an hour to do. <laughs> but it was a great idea. I mean, it, it kind yeah. of paid for itself yeah. at the end of the day. So we oh, yeah. uh, we we, we kind of we let the the horses out out, out of the barn, but I, I'm going to bring it up anyway, and, and that is that you helped birth uh, to English radio when they were but a wee uh, act of scruffy-haired Irish lads. This little one-off band called U2. Yeah, it's really funny actually because I just um, the, the, do you remember an old magazine in in the UK music band called Sounds? No. Right, there used to be Sounds and the New Musical Express and Melody oh, yeah. Maker. And yeah, we're Melody talking Maker like... Melody Maker and Enemy, I know, yeah. Yeah, well, Sounds was the other one. Um, and they've just got an online publication with the station that I'm doing my own show on. And um, I just wrote a piece called Stories for Boys about you 2 and taking them and, and getting them their first radio and uh, TV. It just went online today, so it's quite strange. I'm answering the same question to you. But, yeah, but um, I first heard um, a U2 cassette by a guy at Ireland called Neil Story. And he'd been like, you know, the, the, the basically the guy who sadly now has passed, Rob Partridge, who was the head of press, and Neil worked with him, was the guy who gave the U2 tape to Chris Blackwell. Uh, so he actually discovered them. I remember going to a music conference in Manchester and somebody asked him that question. Um, was it, is it true that the press guy found him? Chris Blackwell, who was on a keynote, said to me, yeah, it's absolutely true, Rob Partridge gave me that band. So the press department were the first people to to create a buzz. I remember in 1979, U2 played six London shows in 10 days. Um, and you could imagine the press department taking them to see all those shows. Anyway, Neil had sent me this tape and stuff, and it was a bit rough and ready. And, and then they, they were playing, um, they were out on the road. There was a gig at the Manchester Polytechnic. And the guy who was sharing a room in my house with me and my wife was the guy in the radio station in Manchester who happened to be playing. Uh, he was doing the show. Cures for Insomnia, which went out 11 till 2 on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, Friday night, Saturday morning. I mean, he was the guy that was doing the interviews on all my up-and-coming artists. And he had a leak in his apartment where he was living. And I offered him to let him stay for the weekend, and he stayed for two years. Um, <laughs> and, and when he was staying with me, we, and now he's, a, now he's been on the BBC for, for, like, 35 years. He's now on Radio 6. But he did the breakfast show in, in BBC, but he's also the guy that's always done the BBC television Glastonbury shows, a guy called Mark Radcliffe. So his career, like, really escalated in the UK, and he's written books and stuff. But we were kind of kiddies, kids then. And it was really interesting, because when he stayed into my house, um, I'd be kind of playing Neil Young or something, or the Pixies, um, not, well, not necessarily the pixie, Neil Young and something else in downstairs in, in the living room. And he'd be in his bedroom upstairs with New Gold Dream by Simple Mind. So we kind of turned each other. So when I was working the pixies and he heard the pixies and started playing them on his show, because he probably was more aware of it than I am from day one, I would say, we like this grunge stuff. Let me play you the master of grunge, you know, this bloke called Neil Young. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, yeah. It, we did a mentorship together. Anyway, we went to this gig together, and it was a it was a rainy Saturday night. I remember it for several reasons. One was we got our, we he got his car stolen, and we had to go to the police station after the show, and we didn't go until like three o'clock. Um, but we went to the gig, and, and you two were third on the bill. There was a band called Pink Military. And then Waheat, which is Pete Wiley, a guy from Liverpool. And you two were third on the bill. And they kind of came on. The place was fairly full. 
And uh, I remember that they were a bit rough and ready, to say the least. And, and Bonner was kind of swinging from these pipes along the ceiling, which were like heating pipes. Because when I kind of looked at his hands later, they were kind of red, you know. But, but he was kind of caught in the moment. But the thing is, like, he couldn't get to the high notes and this and that. Anyway, if you think of social networking now, and I'll give you this analogy of what Bono could do if he went back to the hotel, right, and got on to social networking, right, if he was at that stage of, like, that scruffy little Irishman. In those days, they were, you two came out that night and met every single person that wanted to meet him and stayed around for as long as it took, and then got into the van and drove three hours in the pouring rain because they had a show the next day. And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, further down the line, I'd be the guy getting them out of bed. Really, taking them really into making that personal connection was, a, Absolutely. was a, a, something very different than what the other bands were doing, huh? But what they did was they came out and they couldn't believe the local DJ was there. Oh, my God, you know, shaking his hands and did you enjoy the show and this yeah. and that. Yeah. And we were personable talking. You know, this was all four members of the band. Um, but then there were fans coming in. So we were kind of almost like fans, but the media. And, um, you know, but at the same time, then they would stand and talk to some guy who probably went home really thrilled because he'd met some guy in the band. And the, the interesting thing was when we went home, even in spite of having our car stolen and things, we were kind of talking, you know, like there's something about that band, you know. And we got up the following morning, we had a cup of coffee, and we were still kind of thinking, yeah, I don't know what it is. The guy's voice is a bit all over the place. The bass player looks like he's come out of a trash heap or something. His hair was all over the place. He wasn't very good. And obviously, Larry was solid and um, and the edge was was kind of good. But, you know, they, they, I mean, like Bono says, they, they weren't a punk band, but they came out of punk, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and anyway, after that, like, um, you know, I'd, I'd start to promote them professionally at, at Ireland and I'd kind of met them before the album came out and, and probably just as... They had um, an EP that could come out in Ireland and uh, that that gig was, I think it was November 90... Uh, I think it was, no, I got kind of like May, April, May um, 1980 and they just got the record... They just got the front cover of the enemy in January and the deal was done. The interesting thing was they, they, they did all those shows in London and Bono was calling on the press himself um, and trying to build a relationship with people and get what they can. And then when they bet, went back to Ireland, it had all been in vain because they didn't get a record deal. And then for some bizarre reason, Bill Stewart, was the, who was the head of a and and flew out to this, like, hometown gig they were doing and signed them there and then after they'd played right literally down the road six times in 10 days. <laughs> and he hadn't been to any of them. Maybe he was business. just trying to ring up. Maybe he was just using his expense account for a trip to Ireland. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but yeah, but, but that's when kind of, um, they, they were very much born out of the same mentality. And uh, like I say to people, I mean, you know, it's a basic work ethic with successful bands. And that applied to Bush and Portishead and people like that as well. But they went out and, and like with Zeppelin, they played everywhere. I mean, I had a guy posted on Facebook the other week, a guy called Billy Sloan, and he recounts the interview about, you know, Tony Michael, he's put these Irish guys in and he was hustling to try and get anywhere he could. And, you know, we went to Strath, they were playing Strathclyde University. I remember it vividly interviewing Bono in the gents' toilet, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I got three interviews in, in different toilets from venues, I remember, because, you know, there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere right, to kind right. of, you know, get ready and things. But the thing about them is all these years ago, you see, the thing that I say. Necessity about, is the mother of invention. So just go yeah. where you got to go. Get it done. What I like to, what I like to do with these things is, is kind of normalize it, Christian, because if you look at like you two, for most people who are around today, they've always been famous. 
for 38 years, they've kind of been household names. So even if you're 45, you're only seven when they were kind of breaking. <laughs> but you don't, you, people don't understand that they started somewhere. And when you see them play to 11 people and three of those people came with me, you know, they, they kind of like, oh, my God. But like Bono was nobody one day. You know, it's now it's like talking about the Pope because who doesn't know who Bono is? But the but the interesting thing is is while you like people say to me with with my PR and things, they said you miss it. I said, well, what is there to miss? I said in the same way that it took me two years to get you two on the radio, and no band would have that amount of time now. But you don't want to put a downer on it. You you kind of use the positive things about you two were kind of so hungry to to to, to make it that they would do anything that they needed to do and and the amount of work that they put in. Where a lot of bands like to whinge and complain and grumble about it. But the thing about them was was like those people that um, went to see them. I've got people now. There was there was a gig in Manchester and Simpler Ed's manager was the PR guy was the social secretary at the Polytechnic when when. Um, um, in those days, and I remember having like something like 60 people on a guest list. And it, it was like, you know, and I'm saying, I don't worry about it. The important media people and some were friends as well, you know, all right. Um, anyway, I mean, one of those people who was a researcher at Granada TV, who I got into that show. She's the executive director and, and Fremantle person in L.A. in control of American Idol and America's Got Talent. Today, and I was, yeah. a re- I was a record plugger in 1978 mm. and, and she was a researcher. And the other guy who was on the guest list, he was the guy who came up with the idea of who wants to be a millionaire. So I grew up with great people in, in, in the media as well. And, you know, I've got endless stories about that, which I won't bore you with. I mean, I remember, you know, booking two entire rows when Bruce Springsteen did the River Tour in, in the UK. And I, I knew I had a friend who had a record store, but he was also the ticket agent. So I managed to get two rows of tickets and resold them to everybody at Granada. So all our friends, stroke media colleagues were there. And it wasn't until like two weeks after the, the gig that I realized that I lost 26 pounds on the gig because I didn't charge him booking fee. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the gig and I had the most expensive ticket. Like, you know, but what I'm saying is, you, you know, you grow up with these people. And I was, you know, those three people that I took to, um, to see you two at that bar in, in England, not the, one I was telling you about with third on the bill, um, when they were just getting whatever gigs they could. Those people are like media moguls now. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. a co- that's a coincidence. But you know they had they had the energy to go and see people on a Thursday night at a pub in Manchester when you know they could have gone home and done their own thing. But um, yeah, I mean so to, to see those, you know, I like with Bowie. I worked with Bowie, but hey, David Bowie would have done f- just fine without me. He was pretty big when I started working with him. But when you work with a band like that, that you're kind of learning your trade when they're learning theirs. You know, that kind of, you know, you, you can use that first class, I call it almost like case studies, you know. You can you can equate that to kind of hopefully, you know, inspiring people nowadays to say to them it's, it's just different and don't think that you can ever sell as many records as they can. That's right. not just going to happen. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's all changed, so... Well, anyway, you, you, you mentioned uh, the man who fell to earth. You, you got a chance to work with him uh, personally in 1997. What was that like? Uh, I'd probably say the highlight of my career, even after all those years. So you got, you, you, you know, like I say, I mean, there's a couple of things that I'd really like to share with you about them in my book because I didn't really go into it that deep. I mean, like I said, I wrote my book in three months and there's there's a lot missing out of it that, that you know i don't want to make apologies for i just want to repair it by 
writing the book that I'm capable of writing because, mm. you know, like I said in the book, I didn't want to write a book. I wanted to write my book. And I didn't go the literary agent route because I didn't want to have somebody say, we need more sex, drugs, and rock and roll because I would have said, well, you need to go to Guns N' Roses. Yeah, you need to go to Guns N' Roses drummer for that. That's not me, you know. Um, so, so, you know, so um, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> oh, working with Bowie. And, uh, oh, Bowie, right. The highlight of your career. Well, I'd been working his records some, like, seven or eight years early because David Bowie was on the RCA label and I was working for BMG. But but David Bowie wasn't David Bowie because he was crop, popping up at every radio station doing every press. He was like an international artist and he had a lot of other things going for him, films and fashion yeah. and oh, yeah. all that. He was He's like a global brand, you know. Yeah. Um, so, really, all I did was mail his records out. And he was going through periods of, I mean, Bowie's records weren't always that commercial and they weren't getting onto daytime radio. So you get specialist radio and stuff. But I, I hadn't really done anything with Bowie up until um, I was working with a PR company when I was at RCA. They did the press in London and, and the management company were Alan, Alan Edwards. And um, Bowie was on tour. So we were going to go to the gigs and get a guest list together and take some media. Not that it would have made a difference because... You know, it, it wasn't like David Bowie was going to be on the breakfast show the next day. We so kind of accepted. This is the Heathen tour, right? This is no, this is the Earthling tour. Earthling tour, okay. Yeah. So what what he was doing was David Bowie was playing small venues, and I've got some great stories about the tour. So anyway, I get a phone call on like a Tuesday, and Bowie's playing the Wednesday in Manchester, and I was going anyway. Um, so I got a phone call from a girl called Judy Lipsy at the, at the PR company in Lipsy Mead, and she's talking to me. She said, how are you, Bob? I said, listen, Dad, we've got a problem. I said, what is it? Um, she said, we're not able to, to do the Bowie tour. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, normally we're out on the road arranging all the press and stuff, and we immediately thought of you. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, we'd like you to go on the road and arrange all the... I mean, all, when I say all the press and radio, this, this was from organising the photography passes to doing the station idents for Japanese radio stations and really working with a, with a bunch of serious professionals who've been working with him for, like, decades. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I've got, like, a day's notice. So we're talking, and she said, listen, David um, likes to meet everybody he works with, so can you get down to the gig at Soundcheck and, um, and you know, I'll, I'll give you number to contact the um you know the tour manager yeah, well, and well known as quite the hands-on professional yes oh without a doubt yeah so anyway so i meet him and and you know i mean bowie's like stood in front of me and i didn't get nervous but i mean you know i didn't kind of ever expect to meet him so i um you know i'm there and we're talking and stuff and then i get the phone call like you know after after that i get the phone call um, oh david david thought you were great you know um you're on. I said, oh, great. She said, listen, as you know, the tour started. You only missed the one show, and and, uh, and we managed to cover that, but we realized we were not able to do it. She said, but, you know, I'll I'll send you the tour dates, and he's in Liverpool tomorrow. You know, can you be there for, like, you know, 2 o'clock, meet such and such? He'll give you the, you know, and then they were issuing me with a walkie-talkie so that you got, like, notice when Bowie was arriving with the bus outside and you had to go and, and then you had to switch your phone to Channel 5, which was the which was the channel during the course of the day because David had different, all, all these things, which like, well, fucking hell. This is, oh, excuse me, which is, this isn't like, you know, promoting records this is kind of another league altogether yeah so anyway so um, so she says to me she says okay so be there is that okay with you I said yeah she said well let's do that and she says well, then I'll, I'll you know just get into the tour and then and then i'll give you a call and we can start talking money um and she said so you want me so i'm saying so you want me to be there at, at, at two o'clock in liverpool she said yeah and she said and you want me to go on the road for this tour with david bowie 
And she goes, yeah. And I said, and you're going to pay me? <laughs> you know, it was Again. kind of like, like I needed paying. You know, oh, yeah. exactly. It was yeah. exactly the same as it was like all those years ago. Yeah. But some of the things that happened with Bowie were, were kind of, you know, something that if people are interviewing me in 25 years, I'll still be talking about because they don't date. So one of the things was I, I used to have to go out every morning and buy the local newspaper because Bowie liked to read the local reviews. Not that it mattered. He was David Bowie, but he liked to know what people thought of the show. And this was a tour where he was doing European festivals in Europe, but he was playing under thousand seaters in the UK. So as a fan, you wouldn't have any problem just getting the ticket for a show, would you? See Bowie that up close and personal. And, and then it, usually, like, at, at soundcheck the day before you before it, you would sit down and discuss what promotion was available. And who doesn't want to talk to David Bowie? So it's not like it's hard. So, But people would be feeding things to you from the record company in London, from this and that, and you'd have to go through them and sit down with them and tell them all this. And I remember sitting there one day and I said... Um, well, there's this, David. He said, he said, what's this? I said, well, you know, it's the BBC. Um, and I said, the guy's clearly a big fan. He's got every album he ever made. And I said, and there's, then there's a commercial station. I said, listen, you're a famous man. You know, they put the video on and they, they mention the gig and people are sitting around having their dinner watching you on TV. And, and, and I explained the, the difference. He said, what do you think? I said, well, listen, you know, you don't have to do any of these. As far as I'm concerned, it's entirely up to you. I said, but if I was going to do one, um, I do the BBC because the guy basically is is you know yeah, yeah. clearly how knows, can you go wrong with that? The, the guy clearly knows just, his stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so he looked at me and he, and he kind of um, he, he just leant across. He said, "Well, if you think I should do it, Tony, I'll do it." And I swear to God, I walked out and I left him with him and she was there, you know, to sit and have a bite to eat before the show, and then go to his dressing room. He wasn't in the same dressing room as the band, so they had a bit of downtime. You know, it's his wife. Yeah. Um, and I walked down the corridor to just go back out front and I'm clenching my fists and I'm thinking I don't believe this David Bowie has just agreed to do something on my recommendation <laughs> um, but the other thing is that, like the, the BBC guy one of the questions that he asked him he said David he said last time I saw you it was in it was at Aston Visual Leisure, Leisure Centre which is a football ground to like 35,000 people he said tonight you're playing Nottingham Rock City to 900 people he said why and he looked at me he said because I can yeah. And that was so cool, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not arrogant. It was just like, and I tell you that the highlight of the tour was was, and you can picture this. You don't need me to sell you this and paint a picture. Just hear this one out. So I'm kind of, my job was to stand in the orchestra pit at the beginning of the show because you can only photograph the first three numbers, and then the band used to be left alone to play. I mean, in the old days, the great photographers. The Annie yeah, Leibovitches, yeah, yeah. they used to get on stage and all those classic shots at gigs were taken from photographers on stage. But that doesn't happen now. So you're allowed to do the first three numbers and then you go. So I got all these Japanese photographers in the pit and all that and everything, and I'm kind of watching them and, and you know, and then after three numbers, okay, guys, you've got to go now and wheeling them out, you know. So I'm in the pit, and, and the stage is not like a huge stage like it was with the Zeppelin things. and It's just like a normal college event type stage thing, and I'm there in the orchestra pit. David Bowie would come out every night in a white linen shirt, white kind of cotton slacks, barefoot with an acoustic guitar and a white spotlight on him, right? And would walk to the front of the stage and picture this with the microphone stand like in front of me and do, and this was every night of the tour, and do an acoustic version of a song from Ziggy Stardust or Hunky Dory. And I swear to God, I would stand there with my mouth open 
<laughs> Can you imagine telling an 18-year-old kid that this was going to happen to you 25 years later? Amazing. I mean, you Absolutely can't make amazing. you. Can, no, it's one of no, my great no. stories, Christian. You yeah. cannot make that up. Right. right. And you know, you're, you're kind of there, aren't you? In the best way that you can be, secondhand. I was there, and I would go every night. I would drive into the shows and stuff, and be between the show and the hotel. And I would find myself listening to Bowie records. It's not like I didn't have the CDs. I was just on autopilot. I was just like in the entire Bowie moment for like three weeks or something, you know, of, of the UK tour. And it, it's like I'm still excited talking about it now. I, mean, I can't make up the enthusiasm in my voice, dare I say, because it takes you back to a time and a place. I love sharing stories like that. And, and you know, one night we had um, we, we left and Bowie would travel um, in a car and i took my own car on the road i didn't travel on the crew bus or anything mm. um so i'd have my car and he would have a driver and they'd take him to the hotel we stayed in stately homes and there was this amazing place hartford hall in in leeds um after the nottingham it was like 45 minutes an hour's drive but it was a it was a stately home in the in the british traditional way with the gardens and the fountains and you know wasn't the holiday in so we're kind of like um we're going there and and like as i get to the to the gates there's, the he there's headlights behind me, and there was nobody else in the car. So who was this, you know? And, and Bowie kind of wasn't hadn't arrived yet, but but I was kind of the first though. I tell this car's behind me, and I pull up, and the car pulls up, and 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 I go over to this car, and like it's like a car full of kids, and it's like they they followed me because I oh, came out they the back. You were Bowie. <laughs> well, they might they might have thought I was Bowie, but they might have not seen me coming out of backstage and leaving. So they assumed that I had something to do with it. So they followed my car. And it was like, you know, and I'm going, get the hell out of here now before I have you arrested. I was like super protective yeah. for Bowie because, you know, I mean, you know, John Lennon, please, yeah. things oh, happen. Yeah, you know? that changed, yeah, that changed. But those kind of things, you know, you kind of find yourself on autopilot. And, and like I say, from a, it was tiring because there was a lot of um, things to do because, you know, you, you, you know, faxes about this, and then this would come, and you get back to the hotel, and there was more. You know, in those days, it was just paperwork. Paper it wasn't like an app that you could kind of find out what you were doing the next day. Right. But yeah, but those were like um, that was an incredible tour, and and um, and then when it all happened a few years ago, that was uh, again like a day from hell. Oh, you know, which yeah, I, I just Jan you know January tenth, uh, two thousand six. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. A shock, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I've heard you say this, and and I I, I got to say this, it's exactly how I felt, which is a world without David Bowie in it. That's yeah. weird. Uh, I don't know if really you, uh, was weird. It was it was like nothing else. I mean, listen, everybody's going to die, you yeah. know, and yeah. I mean, big artists are going to die. I mean, you know. Prince was a huge loss, no, George Michael, you know, oh. all of them. Oh, yeah. And it's sadness and it's grief, but it's not anything like this. And it's not anything that you can prepare yourself. This was like family yeah. uh, uh, or, or, you know, like somebody that's been around, even though, and I'm talking about people who didn't know him. No, um, no. And I went and, and I was woken up like at, at, at um, I get up early anyway. It's about four thirty, and And I, I put a blog on it on, on Facebook and I got a massive amount of, reach and shares and things because what i did was i turned cnn on and that was they were talking about i just burst into tears and i got up like you know to go to the kitchen to make some coffee and i was bumping into things and then i kind of you know try and make a coffee type of thing and i'm like staring at walls and things and no, there was nobody here i was on my own 
And then, you know, my, my phone is full of, you know, with the time difference in England, it's just full of texts and emails and Facebook messages. And then I got a, a, an email from seven, uh, seven o'clock from the Tampa Bay Times. And then Bay News 9, the local people, news people, wanted to send a crew round. And it's kind of like the morning is just like dazed and confused, to quote Led Zeppelin. You know, it's kind of like it's not real. And I was, I was kind of just looking at the walls and thinking, how, how David Bowie can't die? And the, and the context of the, um, of the email is just like that. I'm saying this guy who invented an alien rock star, I mean, surely he can't die. And I was just talking from the heart, but I, it was kind of like um, it was kind of like um, a release for me. And then I phoned these people up at the, at the TV. I said, you know, guys, I know you've got deadlines to meet. Can I just have, like, an hour or two to grieve? Uh, and, and then you've got to come down and, like, talk about something that you're still in shock from it. I've never had a day like it in my life. Well, there uh, is a black star up there looking down on all of us. And when I saw the video, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, but I, I felt the same from what I was hearing from the outpouring of grief from, you know, I mean, there was that legendary post, which I actually ended up saving from a guy who said, you know, the, the, the universe has been around for four billion years. And you were um, lucky enough to be in it while David Bowie. Oh, my was. God. You know your own work. Yeah. But what a quote that was. And I read it and I thought, you know, I don't know who you are, but you're so right. Damn right. Damn right. Yeah. And we are, we are forever grateful of that, you know. I, I Yeah. I think, uh, I think those that, uh, you know, were even marginally interested in David Bowie's career uh, were, you know, just flabbergasted by uh, – uh, first, the the shock of it, and then almost everybody then goes back and and starts looking at the catalog, and which is complete at this point. And you say, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is you know how many catalogs exist like that?" You know, it's just absolutely amazing. So, Tony, after forty plus years in the music business, and and I'm sure you've seen more change than Methuselah, but if yeah. you could, if you could go, well, back I did his first time, album actually. What's that? I did Methuselah's first album. You did, you did, yeah. first album. <laughs> you did the promotional work for it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no wonder the guy's got a great rep. So, yeah. so, so what, what would you warn your clients about to prepare them for today's reality? Well, the thing is, I'm not really in the music business. I'm, I'm kind of doing things that are music related. But, you know, like it's a different industry and it's it's kind of like it's changed a lot. And obviously a lot of it's got to do. I think that's with, my point. I mean, I, I, you know, what, what what is it just changed? Well, what unrecognizable I, what I, or I like to, you know, you know, in my own little way, whenever I'm in a situation, I, I'm, I'm doing things with, I'm involved in, in like, you know, certain panels where you go and do things and stuff. And I like to give people. It's very hard when you go to, like, um, I, I did a talk just to a small bunch of students in Tampa, like, a year or so ago for a friend of mine. I just got in my car, went over, and it was, like, 50 kids on an audio engineering course. And it was, like, a one-on-one -on -one thing, just two of us sat in a chair and the kids out there. And at one stage, I just looked out and I thought, where are these recording studios that you're going to go and work? Uh, where are they? You know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, so they've got all this to pay back for being educated to do this. And it's just really hard. But I like to I like to tell stories. Um, I, I kind of have reached the storytelling stage because I kind of have the back catalog, if you like. Yeah. And I think people listen to things differently when they involve famous people. And I have great stories about people like Springsteen, who I didn't work with. But people don't think that because of like the stuff that I've worked with. But I like to inspire people 
into into aspiring to greatness. You know, I don't like to, you know, I, I, you know, like I'm going to do a, a course for Udemy, but I'm not going to do um, the course that some other people do. One guy's got a course up there how to get a record deal, and and my intro is like, this isn't how to do business. Listen, if you need your car repairing or you're having something taken out, you better get a decent surgeon or a decent car mechanic because your life's at stage, but this isn't how to do business. There's no two bands that are alike. There's no way to manage a band. I mean, Paul McGuinness was a great manager for you too, but he managed Paul Harvey and um, uh, and the Pretenders, and it wasn't as good or, or as easy, could, should I say, to do as it was with you too, because, I mean, he'd, he'd grown up with it, and he knew every part of the machine that was you two. So I try to to inspire people into, into like, you know, listen, into the reality of it of of you know there's and and going back to the things that have never changed like a work ethic you know that there's a generation of people growing up christian that never had it to miss it i.e music yeah Um, i mean i was talking to a guy um at um a a friend of mine introduced me to his son who's working at boiler room tv and we got talking about music and he came out with some quote that i've never forgotten and he said i just went to my to my iPod and I just realized every track I had was a song I didn't have any albums and he came up with one statement he said but you know Tony he said we and we being the millennials he said we had a different entry point to you and he's so right because you know there wasn't as much choice there were no games computer games and things where people get drawn into the massive amount of stuff that is available to them and a lot of it free and when I say there's generation growing up they've never had it to miss it there are people there that don't really expect to pay for music. So so where is the next Paul Simon and Bob Dylan and people going to come from if it's not going to, you know, give you a livelihood? Are they going to be part-time musicians or stuff? There must be ways where, I mean, it is kind of slightly changing with the streaming models and stuff, but, you know, um, you know, there's no record stores to buy kind of. People say there's a resurgence in vinyl. I'm not convinced. I mean, you know. Oh, um, there, there, there's a bit of a resurgence in, in vinyl. Uh, but again, uh, most of it's, you know, back catalog. Uh, yeah. I, you know, the, what, what does the future hold? Um, uh, you know, uh, and we talked a little bit about this uh, uh, offline uh, before we started the interview, but I'll, I'll bring it up for the for the folks today. Just, yeah, you know, the, the you know our our central point is is in the rock and roll archaeology uh, world is that this this time was very special. It's a moment when culture, uh, music, and technology converged that created a big bang. Um, those things don't come around too often, and they don't last very long either. Um, you know, musicians were not treated the way we think of rock stars prior to the 1950s. Uh, you know, may, there was a few, maybe Frank Sinatra. And, and again, that's because of television and radio, because of the technology that was available. But even Mozart wasn't treated like a rock star, uh, you know, in the 18th century. So, you know, it was a, it's a very special moment. And Probably that moment is gone. And, you know, to your point, uh, there are other avenues that kids focus on. And there's so much fragmentation that takes their uh, their attention away to, to other things. So you, you're, you're so right in, in, in that, um, Christian, because the thing is that, um, I mean, kind of the 60s invented teenagers. And I was having a conversation yeah, the other yeah. day, and I'm probably going to go and do a blog out after it, you know, on this. And I was saying, you know, when you look at the guns, the, the kids from Florida organizing the Parkland, the, the, yeah. the, the guns march. Mm-hmm. That would have been Neil Young and Bob Dylan 
yeah. 40 years ago, writing yeah. songs. They were yeah. the protesters. Now you've got kids protesting in a way against the establishment that musicians used to do. But because, of course, it's so wrapped up in in the corporate machine that kind of really pays the rent. I mean, look. Well, there was, a, there was a feedback loop back back in the day. Yeah. Where, but where, what, you what, know, like, like uh, you mentioned Neil Young. Let's let's look at Ohio. You know, exactly. He wrote, he wrote that song three four days in Ohio. After, yeah. Four, you know, three or four days after the uh, the incident. And it was out on the market two or three weeks later. You know, it, it became an anthem. Uh, you know, and, and the same thing with uh, uh, with the, with many of the songs of the '60s, which were commenting on, you know, the uh, especially the protests that were going on in this country because of the Vietnam War, civil rights, yep. so on and so forth. So, you know, we may we may see some of that. I mean, let's face it. Uh, you know, these kids are are uh, becoming politically active. Uh, they are woke, as they like to say, and uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, their music. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll look back and say, here's an opportunity for us to comment on this. I I know some artists. Uh, Kendrick Lamar is one of my favorite uh, hip hop artists who is doing exactly that, and 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 you're starting to see a little bit more of that. Uh, I'd like to see more of it. So uh, maybe that might make it. Well, the thing is, the the power of being a successful artist means that it is down to them because a lot of the other people don't have the room to make a difference like that. But you see, when you think of it. In comparison, I mean, I remember, like, you know, the great thing about artists, and we won't compare anybody to David Bowie, but if you take a band like The Police, right, Mm -hmm. who I'd been buying their records before I was working with them anyway, but if you think of in those days, I mean, you know, teenage girls and stuff would have, like, Sting posters on their wall. Um, I mean, those got replaced by, like, in England, by David Beckham posters, you know, and things like the heartthrobs weren't the musicians. But even, like, an artist like Sting, he would have, like, you know, he'd be on stage and have his shirt off and somebody would have a picture on the wall with his shirt off. And then when it was kind of Ghost in the Machines and Invisible Sun and every breath you're taking, it got a little more deep and serious because those girls were getting a little bit older and having kids and having, like, you know, husbands and mortgages and things. He put his shirt on and he made a little bit more serious he grew, music. He grew with them and, and, and they, they and, grew with him, yeah. And that's what I like about artists that, that are constantly going out of the comfort zone i mean david bowie with tin machine i mean it's not going to be recognized as one of the greatest moments in his career but he felt that he had to do it i remember going to see neil young at the palace theater in manchester um and it was the tonight's the night tour and the eagles were supporting right and there weren't really anything then and he did the tonight's the night tour and he came on and he had a piano and he had above the piano he had like um, a harmonica in a glass right and he would play a little bit of harmonica and shake it and put it back in the glass and wash it out and he had a standard lamp by the side of the piano and he was and danny whitner just died from crazy horse mm-hmm. and neil was in a, was in a place where he was pretty low because one of his good friends had died from heroin addiction yeah, hence yeah. The, the needle and the damage done needle and the damage done right exactly right. and and the thing is and and somebody was like from the audience shouted out like heart of gold you know and he just like as he was starting the intro just stopped and looked across he said if you can get into what you were doing like 15 years ago, then so will I, you know. And it kind of shut the person up. But what I'm saying is he came out and did something that wasn't particularly commercial. Um, but as an, a, there's a great book by Walter Yetnikoff called Howling at the Moon. And he recites a story about Springsteen. And Springsteen had just had, you know, phenomenal success with Born to Run, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, like, the time came where he had to Too go in. success. <laughs> yeah, when he, kept, when he he had to come in and play the new record to, to the record company boss. So he comes in to see Walter, who's the president of what was CBS at the time. And 
you know, he delivers Nebraska, you know. And it, it's kind of like, yeah, but, but you know, like they listen to it. And then Walter, to his credit, turns around and says, I have to tell you, Bruce, as, as the chairman of your record company, this record won't sell. And Springsteen said to him, I understand, Bruce, but as an artist, I feel well, like I, I have to make this record. Yeah. And then he allows him to release it. I mean, for me, what a great boss, you know, not Springsteen boss. I mean, Walter Yetnikov, yeah. because he knew that as an artist, he had to release that to get it out of his system. And then the next album he delivers is born in the USA. Well, you kind know, of let him indulge in that period. I'll, I'll, you know, Yetnikov, uh, Joe Smith, Erdogan, they, they just these guys, oh, those guys I'm don't exist Erdogan. anymore. You know, they're, they, 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 you know, well, old record men, you know, the, the guys who, who, who got into the business because like, like you, they love, they loved it first. Yeah, but you know what? When people are, you know, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm a boring old man, but you know, when these people are, are going and, and paying for a, an expensive education to get in an industry that is not the industry I got in, my mentors were my school. I learned from the greatest people in the business. Yeah. So if I'm working for a guy that gave Bob Marley five thousand dollars without a, a, a without a uh, contract, yeah, after he'd we, been ripped off and almost assassinated, exactly for a guy who'd never made, a, never seen that money, and at the time was never likely to all his yeah. life, yeah. You, anybody would have thought a guy would have run away like that. And to build a relationship based on trust, and the rest again is history. But these people make history. I mean, what you're doing. I mean, I'm going to go and. and you know, I'm going to sit around and, and go to Mixcloud and stuff and listen to all the stuff that you're doing because I never not want to be educated. Let me tell you another quick story. When when Chris Blackwell got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the UK as the most influential British person in the music industry in the last 50 years, that's quite an accolade when you look at what he was up against. <laughs> uh, you know, Lennon, uh, George Martin. Uh, Bowie, you know, Townsend. Exactly. Uh, I mean, come on. You just keep on going. Yeah, uh, so he yeah. got awarded this, and Bono gave him the award. And he basically said, Chris, this is, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let's face it, you just about built it. And he, he credited him for, you know, for, I mean, the thing with Blackwell is he didn't really, really get you two to start with, but he didn't interfere with his A&R person signing them. And, of course, when he met them, and they showed so much belief. Um, but he when got, Chris I'm Blackwell... I'm sure he got it pretty quickly. When Chris Blackwell, who hasn't written a book... Who's probably there in flip flops and a Hawaiian shirt, you know, very low key. <laughs> yeah. But he is who he is. He's Chris Blackwell, damn it. Yeah. So when he got presented the thing and he stood there and he's got to do his, his kind of acceptance speech, um, he watched the microphone. And this is a 64 year old guy at the time. And he says, I would like to thank my great friend and mentor, Ahmed Ertigan. So you got 64 year old white Jamaican who started Island Records and and to this day is still remembered for Island Records, thanking a 73-year-old Turkish immigrant. You're right, right. right. These people, these people, Christian. The and I'm, the, sa right, I'm right. the same, but I'm not in that league. But I never will lose sight of mentors and have them as my inspiration to get me up in the morning. And I hope that I can kind of, with some people, be a little bit of a lesser you know, version of them in their world by, by letting them kind of understand that, you know, if you want to kind of learn something like this, the, and, and listen, these people never had the internet, inter, the internet to go and do their own work. And when we've got things like Amazon Prime, and and you know, I, I watched an amazing thing on, on Amazon Prime called Corporate FM, which is about the the collapse of radio. 
Um, and when the corporates came in and bought the big radio stations and got rid of all the great DJs, and oh, there was yeah. a, I went to a premiere a crime, of a film. A crime. Yeah. I mean, come on. Radio, by its essence, is local. You can only yeah. go so far with the signal, and then it's gone. How did anybody think that you could nationalize or corporatize it to a single entity that works for all geographic locations. It, it, yeah. it makes no sense when you think about it. I mean, I could see the dollars and why, you know, on that side where on a business side, it may seem like it makes sense, but there's, there's this giant monolith that's standing in front of you, which is the technology is localized. So, but that, we, we could right. go on forever with that. Yeah. But just go watch on, it's on HBO. I think yeah, at the moment, a program called F- Dare. No, that's on Amazon prime, but on HBO is a film called Dare to be Different which is about a radio station in Long Island in the early 80s, which overnight changed their format. And the film has got Paul McGuinness on it and Paul Idol. And, mm. you know, and, and they were the station to play bands like The Cure and the first station to play kind of U2 and stuff because they dared to do something different. And I met the director, Ellen Goldfrapp, when she came down. There was the film showcased in Tribeca in New York, and then it came to a festival in St. Petersburg. And now it's on, like, you know, the TV. And it's just an amazingly, incredibly inspirational um, program about a time that made a difference and changed. And I know people from New York who were such avid listeners and it, it's it's never gone away from them because it changed the way they looked at music because of just people doing something different. And, um, you know, like I say, it's, it's it, it, it will, t- not so much a revolution, but I think the thing with music is getting back to what we were talking about before and just then was it's always been like a cycle. I mean, Tony Wilson from Factory said it's generally like a 10 year cycle. Something comes and something else goes. I mean, you know, it started with the Mississippi Delta Blues singles sitting on beer crates to pay for their next meal. And then America threw it across to England and Clapton and, and, and Jimmy Page and everybody got influenced Keith Richards by the Delta blue singers and they kind of became led zeppelin and who and everything and then threw it back to america and then and then when all the hair bands and everything came out in the states and then you had like stuff like you know there were all these bands that were like you know i i was they're not my cup of tea but whether it's boston or foreign or or ario speedwagon they got 12 albums and about two songs and america and england kind of revolted against that and that's what happened with punk it was like a bunch of people that couldn't really play that just thought they can get on the stage and do it. And then even when punk was happening here, you still had the Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks and things. And, of course, America had, you know, the Velvet Underground and Blondie and the Ramones and stuff. So that's what's always happened. And, and since hip-hop came in, and no disrespect to hip-hop, but there's been nothing that's come anywhere near it to replace it on a lifestyle, a culture, and music that everybody seems to just grow up listening to now. Yeah, it's fragmentation. Uh, uh, again, there, there are technological uh, reasons that make you know music less valuable. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. we, we had to save up money and then make choices. Hmm, which album am I going to buy? This one or that one? Kids exactly. do not have to do that. They 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 have every song literally at their fingertips so mm. that that's a huge huge game changer well t- tony we could go on and on i i didn't even get to talk <laughs> about your radio career you you quickly just mentioned manchester i i was gonna i was gonna delve into that your relationship with michael Littman. uh i, I just wanted to know if you thought steve 
Guggen did a good job as Tony Wilson, for Christ's sakes. But we we, we just ran out of time. We will just definitely have to have you back. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, I, and and I, th- I think, uh, is it fair to say that uh, you are working on a new book? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually halfway through it, but I kind of took myself away from it because I've got a lot of projects on the go that need a little bit of development from my side. So I, I, I got the opportunity to do a radio show, which was kind of a little different because it's an hour on bands. And it's and, and I've got like the, the title of the program is called The Promised Land. And there's a line in the Springsteen song that says, I if I could take a bit of a Springsteen yeah, if I could take one moment into my hands. So I'm going to like bring people on who had something to do with that particular act from the record company's point of view or whatever and ask them to share one moment from that person, whether it's Tom Petty or Van Morrison or whatever, um, and just doing something that isn't, you know, listen, I've got friends in radio stations in England who send me all the latest trendy, you know, independent artists and I'd pick my favourite ones and play it. But what's the point? I mean, everybody's doing that. And, and there's some kid in the bedroom anywhere in the world that's going to do it better than me. So I'm going to do something that... And I really enjoyed it, just sitting at my kitchen table here and and just rolling it out. And and I had great reaction to it and really nice, favourable comments, which means that I'm kind of daring to be a little different in my own world. (laughs) Hey, hey, according to Bob Dylan, he not busy being born is busy dying. Uh, Tony Michaelides, uh, thank you so much for being a a part of Deeper Dixon Rock uh, today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Boy, it really seems like you have lived a charmed life. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Christian. Don't forget to invite me back or I'll email you. I sincerely hope all you diggers picked up on how Tony sees the business then and now, how things new might need to be old again to create success in between the stories of Bono and Bowie and all the rock stars. He knows of what he speaks, success and what that means, how to work it, how to achieve it. Tony's book, Insights from the Engine Room, which can be found at your favorite book retailer, takes on that task to some degree. Like our interview, it is some fun wrapped in a bit of how-to. He has got the bug, and he wakes up every day ready to take on the next challenge with humor and grace, but also with passion that makes work seem like fun. Uh, Go get it if you want to know more. Hey, diggers, thanks for stopping by, and come back real soon. Oh, and please, tell a friend. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you again for listening. Keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. 
And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.